Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 197. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at vjourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at networknerd underscore. Hey Nick, how's it going? Hey John, I'm doing great. We are pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe, smashing that subscribe button. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, Nick. Hey, I just wanted to mention again that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is now live. That's the knowledge graph and linked notes version of our main page's show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, link to guests, link to topics, link to kind of meta discussions and meta knowledge that we've bubbled up to the top. So all of that is now live, and we'd love to get your feedback on that if you want to go ahead and tweet at us. But uh, with that said, uh, who are we talking to this week? What's the subject? This week, a trilogy comes to an end. Those are always mixed-feeling episodes, a little bit of joy and anticipation to see what happens, but always sadness because we're closing out a series with a guest. But before we go into what's going to happen in part three, let's talk about part one in episode 195 with David Babbitt as our guest. David studied software development as a young man, worked for a large company, and actually found he needed to move to a startup to make a greater impact and fulfill his purpose. And in that episode, we debunked some myths about startups. Yeah, a lot of fun to listen to episode uh, 195. And then last week in episode number 196 was uh, part two, and we talked to David about being a player coach, influencing others as a product manager without actually having managerial power over them. And then the idea of user stories and acceptance criteria, which is something that wasn't foreign to us, but really, you know, was the first time that we had had it kind of formally defined. Now let's talk about part three. I think the things that I wanted to have people look out for were now that we've talked about user stories and acceptance criteria, another little bit of jargon, the idea of agile ceremonies. I honestly had never heard this phrase before David said it. So hopefully that'll be interesting for other people. It's very formal and fancy, I just have to say, or at least it sounded that way. I enjoyed hearing about them as well. I would say listen closely for the qualities a product manager needs to possess. We talked a little bit about some of the things product managers do in episode 196, but this is more about how can you become one and what qualities must a good product manager possess? Yeah, very, very interesting. It made me think about that uh, career path, actually. Finally, I think we covered the principal title, which... Uh, David has and does hold and really his experience of that. So that's something that comes up a couple of times and we've had, you know, repeated questions about. So just wanted to make sure to signpost that. Without further delay, let's get into episode number 197, part three of our discussion with David Babbitt.
If you could maybe just take 15, 20 seconds to describe what Agile ceremonies are, that would be great. Okay, so Agile itself is, I think, more of a principle and not necessarily a... I didn't, I didn't mean the 15 or 20 seconds. That was a joke. He just wants you to share what those are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really just want to know what Agile ceremonies are. Oh, you don't, you don't have to share it in an Agile way. You can just explain it for what it is. <laughs> I think that's what he's saying. <laughs> okay. So, so, okay, so there's different, I think that there's different ways. I've only done Agile in a Scrum fashion. So Scrum is kind of like a process. Agile is, I think, more of an intent. Typically in Scrum, you do daily stand-ups. A lot of people call that Scrum. I don't call that Scrum. It's a daily stand-up. Uh, what did you do yesterday? What are you intending to do today? What are my blockers? That kind of thing. That's what a stand-up ceremony looks like. You've got a uh, refinement ceremony where you're talking about the requirements, making sure everybody's on the same page with these requirements. And then you typically also have sprint sprint loading. I can't remember what this one's actually called, where you're taking the refined uh, stories and putting them into the next sprint, making sure that you know we can get all these things done in the next sprint. And then there's also a retrospective. So looking back at the last sprint, what went well, what needs improvement, action items and takeaways, things like that. Those, those are the typical ceremonies in Scrum. I'm not a licensed Scrum PO at, at, at all. I've actually learned more of Scrum through like my friends that are actually licensed as, uh, in Scrum. And, uh, and I've obviously learned a lot just like kind of trying it. And does the licensing get you access to the ceremonial garments that you need to wear during these? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Probably. There okay. might be something to that. Because when you said Agile Ceremony, I'm like, oh, I'm not familiar with this term. It sounds very very formal it's 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 funny that this is so foreign to you guys it's hey former systems administrator now solution engineer yeah yeah oh my goodness it is it is such like the part of my daily life past i don't know how many five plus years now it's just uh it's just what we do no i I know about it because i see people with uh long purple robes all the time (laughs) at the offices at google so i know exactly what an animal ceremony is you know what they are no, it's it's very it's very helpful, I think, for people who are not familiar with any of the terminology. You know, maybe even have to go like look up, you know, oh, I've heard of Agile. I've heard of Scrum. Somebody once told me they were a Scrum master. Like mm-hmm. okay. Like, but if you are not in the actual development cycle, like you don't know what that looks like. You know, this like formalization of this process and like how the sausage gets made like what turning the crank actually is, right? And this is essentially a, this is how we turn the crank type of process. Yeah, I mean, I think at the, at the risk of sounding like an idiot, because I haven't really thought about this in a long time, but like there's sort of like two big fundamental things that I've experienced in my career of like building software in terms of like the process. So one process is the waterfall process. So you get like a giant requirements document, the engineers look at it, they go and like think about how they're going to solve the problem, they assign sizes to everything that's in this, in this giant set of requirements. They say it's a six month project or a 12 month project, and they go off and start building things, right? You know, whenever it gets approved. So very waterfally in the sense it's like these giant uh, efforts. The idea of like Scrum, there's other types of processes that are agile like Scrum. And the idea there is essentially like you don't want to be committed to something like that. You want to have the flexibility in in the future of you know, this this program in, in order to respond as you need to to the feedback that you're getting from the market or from the users or from the early testers or whatever. And so you don't go off and spend a ton of time researching and designing something that, you know, for 12, 18 months of a project, when six months from now, you might choose to do something else. And so that's where, you know, you, you develop a more iterative process where you're learning along the way and kind of building the 
the next set of stories that you're going to invest into the product. You're building those kind of out in front of you. So this kind of family of development processes really solved the problem of the ridiculousness of the question. It became more and more ridiculous of what is it that you're going to need 18 months from now? Or what is it that you're going to need three months from now for the next version of the software? Because we have a, a two-year development cycle. Like every two years is when our major release comes out. And then we have a minor release, be, you know, on the even years or whatever it is, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I hesitate to totally agree with that because like as a PM, you're also responsible for knowing where this product does need to be in two years from now. But what I what I kind of don't want to do is write something to a level of specification that an engineer can build from if they're not going to build it for a year and a half, because we will learn a lot between now and a year and a half from now that, you know, where we can better write that requirement, or maybe that requirement isn't as important. But like generally we know in terms of like roadmap, like we know where we need to be a year from now. We should, we, we know where we should be really two years from now, like where the market's going to be and stuff like that. But, you know, we're not writing down to the story level, if you will, to the requirement level of where we should be two years from now. If we are, then I, I think that to a degree you're a little bit too rigid. I've seen too many examples and I won't name companies or anything like that, but I've seen too many examples of like gigantic requirement documents that were really well specified. I'm sure the engineers were super researching how to solve these problems and they designed code and whatever else and then you're from from the onset like that these projects were never completed to the way that they were originally written so there was a lot of waste that went into writing the requirements researching the requirements researching the solution for the requirements that never actually got implemented and that's where i think kind of the principles behind agile and, and probably scrum as a, as a process came from my understanding again i might you know be showing my lack of knowledge in this area i've just sort of stumbled into a lot of this over time no, I, I think that matches the wikipedia article that i read <laughs> you know two years ago so expert that... scrum master <laughs> you know my reaction i think was more strongly to the user stories and acceptance criteria because that is something that i feel like in my job as a customer engineer sorry within the field of sales engineering where we're going out to customers and we're trying to solve a problem with our with our product right so the the engineering effort is really how do we put the pieces of the product portfolio or partner product portfolio together to solve the customer's problem we i feel like don't have a matching process of customer stories but we should and i don't know how to solve that i think maybe it's just me studying writing customer stories maybe is the the solution but. sounds like we need book recommendations david i think is what john's <laughs> saying i think uh, this is pretty interesting pivot to the conversation is also like how do you get into pm right and so because this is a big part of being a pm right and so i was thinking back to like how i got into it besides the you know just this was given to, you know, in the sense like i had the opportunity to choose to go into this role right but then what did i do after that because i didn't know how to do it so what did i do after that so things that i remember doing i bought lots of books and read lots of books you know, read lots of blogs at the time this is way back you know dating myself now so this is like read lots of blogs at the time of how other pms were solving problems attended conferences and listened my favorite sessions at conferences were hearing about other failures almost like what 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 people tried what didn't work what they learned from that those are the, for me were always the best and then sometimes go into like kind of the user groups or the meetups and stuff like that i found like meetups it, maybe this is just a pm thing i found like meetups felt like more of a place for people to come together and kind of posture and i don't know it just for me i don't think that i learned a ton at, at meetups but i felt i felt 
like I learned more going to to conferences and and there was a couple of seminar sorts of things that I remember paying into online as well. There's a book called Product Handbook that I really liked. There's a book called Story Mapping that I like. There's there's a couple of books on ways to write effective stories that I like. Of course, there's like Lean Startup, I think is a good book. Like I was, before Lean Startup, I was looking at Eric Reese's um, blog. It was Startup Lessons Learned. I read through tons and tons of that before he got into like Lean Startup becoming a thing and writing the book, obviously, of Lean Startup. There's tons of lessons on that, on that blog. I remember going through that a lot. What else? Boy, I'd have to look at my Amazon history. No worries. One thing I want to ask along those lines is if someone wants to take a step toward product management because it sounds interesting the things that we've discussed sound like an interesting job to have a lot of people can gain experience by doing some of the things that will be responsibilities of the next job while they're in their current job so are there things that someone outside of product management can be doing to take steps to get there and progress to it to gain that experience outside of just the education the networking with other people in the industry and community, because those are definitely valuable things. But I imagine they probably also want you to be able to have relatable experience that you can reference. I think there's definitely things that you can do. You should, a lot of people are exposed to their product manager on a regular basis. And so like if you imagine you're in a, you're in a ceremony, if you will, you're going to a meeting and you're seeing the sorts of questions that PMs are asking, like take note of that. Think about like why they ask those questions. What do you think that they're trying to get out of it? I've seen like mentorship happen in a, in a formal way at some companies. So maybe you can team up with a PM. I've, I saw this happen at Ping a couple of times where some people from different parts of the org sort of got mentored by the PMs and they eventually became PMs. And so they would they would do sort of that, following them, asking questions after the fact. Why did you ask this? What did you learn from that? What were you seeking? And then just sort of like general mentorship. I, I, I would see that stuff happen on a pretty regular basis. I've never been in a situation where you're trying to use these as examples to, I guess, sort of like get the role. So I, I don't know how you transition from that to get the role. I just know that people have done it. And so I don't know exactly how that translates. If you just sort of like say, hey, you know, I mean, maybe you can pass the interview after that saying that this is what I learned and this is what I think. A lot of these interviews are really just like, how would you solve this problem? And what have you done before? And I think you can answer the what have you done before by by being honest about like, this is what I saw. This is how I learned from it. This is what I thought of it. This is how I would have done it differently, potentially. I think there's a lot to be in a PM also. I don't want to necessarily derail the question, but like, there's a lot to be in a PM that, that I don't know how much of it is learning. So like we, I talked about empathy before. You definitely have to be able to empathize with your users. Like that's a big part of it. Uh, another one is being able to make decisions without perfect data. That's another big thing that people talk about inside of PM. I don't, maybe that's something that's, I'm, I'm sure that that's something that can be practiced and learned. So maybe the same sorts of things, like how would I make this decision? What would I go and research in the absence of that data? How would I choose? How would I know that I'm right or wrong? Like think about that as, as a way to sort of like learn that skill. Like you can't research everything. So you have to, at some point in time, be better at, you know, answering these questions, prioritizing based on imperfect data. Dealing with uncertainty. Dealing with uncertainty. Yeah. I think another one is kind of thinking about what is the actual, some of the day to day, like you have to defend priorities a lot as a PM. Like this, this is why we're doing this before this, right? So imagine like you have to kind of, to a degree, stick to your guns like being able to defend why we're doing things when when faced with scrutiny but at the same time there's a there's a kind of a common or popular phrase inside of pm which is like strong opinions loosely held so you have to have a position you have to have an opinion but you also have to have the sort of self-awareness to recognize when the data like seek out data or seek out anecdotes or whatever it is that's going to make you realize that maybe you're on the wrong path so that you can switch paths before it's 
you know, becomes a problem. Like you don't want to bury your head in the sand because this was the decision that you made a year ago and continue making the wrong decision or continue down a path of the wrong decision. So that's kind of another one. And I think another one that is maybe also kind of like not easy to learn is, or maybe even possible to learn is think that there's an amount of emotional intelligence that comes with that's like required for this role. You, <laughs> I remember saying this at Spiceworks one time. We had so many users that were asked for so many features that by definition, every single time I chose to do one feature or 10 features, I was upsetting 99% of our audience that didn't want those features, right? And so you have to recognize as like a PM. And, and ever since then, you're always doing things that aren't exactly what the customer that you're potentially talking to next week asked for. So, you know, you're probably going to deal with customers that are not happy about what you're doing next. And why didn't you do this? And so some of that is like when you're, you're going to have customers that are upset with you because a feature doesn't work the way that they want it to work or something like that is a, it's a really trivial example. It's like just to be able to like not, not respond rashly to that, to have like kind of just realize it's, this isn't a personal thing. This is just whatever. And, you know, move on, separate the personal from it. Right. They're not criticizing you personally. They're criticizing a priority decision and then they might be criticizing your cho choice of making that right but sure, it's like sure. for me it's like it's not yeah it's not a personal thing you have to i've seen some pm struggle they can react emotionally to you know being criticized you know and what you know whether that's they're necessarily thinking it's like a personal attack on them or whatever it's just they don't react well to criticism in general and and then they have struggled with that and that's you know i think that that's that's something that takes practice i i don't know how teachable that is i don't know you know maybe it's just your thicker skin over time i really don't know how to develop it to be fair but um i think that it's something that i've recognized that i've maybe over the years just become almost so stoic about work that work is work as much as i am like sort of super passionate about work things like it can also recognize that it's a job <laughs> and uh you know it's you not a good therapist <laughs> i wonder if there are therapists who have like a part of their practice is you know working with people who are in maybe not just product managers but people who are in job roles where they come under a lot of criticism and that ability to learn how to take criticism as something about the decisions and not about the person yeah and, i mean sometimes it is the person but still and even when it is i mean i think there's like what's the how am i going to feel about this in five minutes in five hours in five days like that's kind of one of the sort of ways to like realize like how how important is this and how emotionally should i be charged about it i think that there are i always call these sort of like mechanical ways to overcome challenges that you might have and so like if you recognize like oh i just got this really upset email or i just got told face to face by this customer this thing is very upsetting and then if you just make it part of your habit to say okay well how am i going to feel about this five minutes from now or five hours from now or tomorrow or whatever and like just make that your your mechanical response to that situation then you know you develop a habit around it and maybe it is a way to sort of train that that eq i feel like you read decisive by chip and dan heath and that's some of the advice that they would have given to make decisions. I like it. I've read a Chip Heath book or Dan Heath. Who was it? Chip and Dan Heath wrote that one. They, I, I don't they, think I read they wrote a bunch of books. Yeah, I think I read a different one of theirs. I thought, John, while you were talking, I'm like, oh, well, a sports psychologists can do it. Why not? Yeah. You know, no, that I, I, it was not a uh, joking comment. I assumed that there are psychologists who have that exact, that that is part of their practice, you know, because there's a lot of jobs where there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of criticism and critique and there can be a lot of money at stake, you know, and staying in that job, but being able to take that and not 
take it personally, right? It's, this is just another input. I know there's like career coaches, life coaches, there's some kinds of stuff like that out there. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm sure, I'm sure that they deal a lot with these sorts of issues. So David, kind of like one last point, I wanted to ask about the principal title. You know, we've asked about the product management part, but you know, one of the things we noticed was that you have this principal product management title. And you know, that's something that we've been counseling people to look for is, you know, an individual contributor path where you have, again, that process of, or progression. And I wanted to get your input on like what it took to get that principal title and what it means to you. And then how maybe your understanding of what that title meant has changed. Good questions. I'll try to take those in pieces. So what it took to get that title, I I think I, I couldn't necessarily say, like I said earlier, I don't, I'm definitely not like a career sort of calculating career, like ladder climbing, any any sort of person, right? So I just, I always just tried to do like what is in part fun for me, what is also fun and creative and, and good for our customers. And I've always been really ambitious about, you know, recognizing opportunities to solve more problems. And as a result, I've been rewarded over my career to, to get different opportunities and, and grow and uh, and get different titles. Like I said before earlier, like I, I became director twice and then stepped around, stepped back from that because I, I recognized that be going into the management path, while I did like it as an engineering manager early on, for me, like the, I I'm more, much more enjoy the creativity of the role of being a PM. And so I uh, didn't, didn't want to focus my career on just being, moving into that management path, right? So I enjoy being on the, call it the individual contributor path, right? Because you know, I think I do recognize it, you know, I'm a PM now, but I recognize that this, this happens inside of uh, engineering, this happens inside of like data scientists and stuff like that. These are, are similar sort of indiv- individual contributor ladders as well. So principal, I don't, you know, I don't know if this is across the board principal for the past couple of companies that I've been at is the highest level that you get as an individual contributor. It, yeah, where I was previously, like we had just a, a few principals and they were, they, you know, they were the, the high, in, principal engineers, principal PMs, like they were the highest uh, individual comp- contributors. Beyond that, you were a director, you had some sort of manager title. Sure. I think it was interesting that you said it wasn't you searching for a title. It was that you were searching for increased responsibilities for solving problems. And with that comes basically a recognition that, oh, you have exceeded really what all the other, say, senior people are doing or super senior or staff or whatever the level below that is. And, or maybe even the responsibility to interact with the people that you need to interact with in order to solve this problem requires kind of a higher level title for them to even pay attention to you or, or something along those lines. So that is where the title came from. But also it sounded like a little bit of, I want to avoid becoming a manager. So can you give me this title, which is like an additional step in this individual contributor ladder that gives me additional responsibility that other people without this title wouldn't have. So it's not like a unfair thing, but also I don't want to manage people, but I do want additional responsibility. The only thing I would say different from what you said there is that I wasn't seeking out additional responsibility, really. I can understand why you thought of it that way. I think of it more like, I just recognize there's, again, I just think about the the person who's using the product and where this product needs to solve more problems over time. And so I just recognize that there's more opportunities for our products 
to do better for our user base, for our customers. And if I thought that, hey, why don't we do this over here? It wasn't because I was like in some sort of weird self-serving way. I wasn't like trying to like find opportunity for myself. It was just like, here's another opportunity where this product could go and do more. And I think like the reward for being this sort of like ambitious outside the box thinker, whatever, however you want to characterize it, like that, that was, you're going to, we're going to give you more titles or push you down the management path as it turned out. Definitely stepping back from director. I, I sort of gave myself the title, but I was very clear when I was interviewing after ping that I was looking for principal because at that point that was the title that I gave myself. But I was also very clear, like my goal is not to, to become a director or to become any sort of like manager PMs, like I'm happy to be a principal. I know who I am. I know what I like. This is what I want to do. And so like, I think a couple of companies that I talked to were a little bit concerned because I had director on my resume already that, that I was going to come in there as a principal or as a senior and, and then immediately be looking to become a director again. I was like very clear and upfront with everybody. Like, no, I, I'm happy being, honestly, I don't even care if it's principal. Like I'm happy being senior principal, whatever. Fair enough. It sounds like bigger impact to me, greater impact to the product, greater impact to the customer base. Connected to the customer. Yeah. Thought leadership. Yeah. I think in general, PM is about thought leadership. Fair enough. Well, I think that I wanted to thank you very much for the time that you spent with us and the kind of thoughtful insight to some of our questions that you've uh, really delivered on. It's been super exciting. 100%. To have this conversation. And I really like your ceremonial robes that you wore while you were <laughs> Nobody, nobody can see this because we're not exactly. recording the it's video. The gold, but... It's the gold braid around my neck. It's the... Yeah, yeah the hat yeah definitely mm -hmm. i've earned these it's lots of agile story writing well i definitely i th thank you guys for this opportunity i thought that this was really fun it was good to see you again nick good to meet you john happy to actually be like the first pm i guess that you guys have talked to so that's pretty interesting i yeah, i expect nothing PM. nothing less than for you guys to talk to some more qualified pms and come back and report and like say david you're all wrong about this and that let you let me know <laughs> we will we will absolutely we i mean we'll write up that uh we'll write up our our findings and we'll say <laughs> You know, this is what most PMs do. Of course, there's always the exception, you know, David. <laughs> this this Babbitt guy, he was a little off. Yeah, I don't, maybe you don't want to follow him as a model, but <laughs> no, that's, I'm surely far from that. We'll put together the alignment document that you talked there you about. There we'll, And we'll, just we'll make align, sure. totally. But this was really fun. I, I, I enjoyed the podcast. I enjoyed the conversation. It was a good, good conversation today. So appreciate you inviting me into this. David, I almost think of an actor who was always in character. It seemed like he had this way of looking at everything through the lens of making the product his company developed better. Kind of like it was his focus from the time he was an engineer to the time he went up to engineering manager, player coach, even up to the executive director level, and then back into product management. But it was the product manager role that I think allowed him to have the most impact upon making the product better. And that's what he liked about it. Yeah, that's such an interesting observation. It's almost like that was the main focus and motivation was for him to have a positive impact on the product and on the end customer. And going throughout the various roles was really 
seeking out that role that would best fit him and that criteria for having that impact. That's a really good observation. Thanks. I was kind of thinking about the user stories and acceptance criteria, you know, as we talked about a little bit more as an entry into that product management role. I was thinking, hmm, if I, as a customer engineer, focus a little bit more on thinking about and formalizing feature requests and gaps, my perception of gaps in our products in the context of user stories, and then what it would kind of take as, you know, putting my hat of projecting what my end customer wants, you know, what that acceptance criteria would look like. That would be an interesting way to edge in the direction of a product management role, if that was something that I, w I was interested in. And, and in general, I think it's probably a way to better relate to that product management team when I'm making requests of them and interacting with them. Even just asking the question, would it make sense if I you know, wrote up a skeleton of a user story to submit to you? Would that help you? And then when they read it, have them critique that. What would be a better way for me to write a user story? You know, what do typical user stories look like for you? What helpful user stories look like for you? And getting that sense would help interact with that role better and maybe, you know, lead to just doing better at my job. And maybe anybody who interacts with a product manager could think about better interaction with a PM team in that context. I have two thoughts on that. First one yeah. is love how you launched into it and phrased it as a user story. Plus one points to John on that. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if you noticed that, but you did. I thought that was great. I also find that giving the user story to product managers and having them give you feedback is analogous to back to the, the Brad Pinkson series of interviews we did where he was talking about asking your new boss how that person likes to be communicated with and yeah, adapting totally your style to it. it that's exactly. the same to me. Yeah, yeah. No, that that is kind of what I had in my mind, which is just a general um, lesson that I had taken from that Brad Pinkston discussion, which is anybody that you interact with, asking them how they prefer to be interacted with. You know, what's what is the best communication and what is it that I can do when I talk to you or give you that, maximizes the impact of the request and how easy it is for you to receive it and and work it into your daily workflow. Makes sense. And I'm going to say that's somewhere around episode 84. That's what sticks out in my mind. Oh, okay. I'll let you check me on that one. But you know, John, <laughs> if you're going to become a product manager one day, you're going to have to learn how to take tough criticism and feedback without reacting emotionally. And I'm just not sure at this point if you can do that. Fair. <laughs> 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 what is your perception of like a, a way to work on that kind of thing that was something that was part of the meta discussion that was going on in my head you know like oh man it's such an interesting point to make but what actionable steps can you take to you know to change what's going on there yeah it, it's that depersonalization you almost have to separate my self-worth is not what i do and if i'm working on a working for a company that makes products it's not it's not tied to someone else's perception of the software we have or or something like that and it's it's not as simple as as it sounds 
It's very true. But that depersonalization, even if somebody is making it personal, the kind of translation layer that you have to put it through, and it's part of our jobs all the time, is kind of echoing back to somebody the statement that they're making. So even if they say, you idiots don't know what you're doing when it comes to reprioritizing things, to be able to say, oh, I hear you saying that the way that we're prioritizing things really seems to miss some fundamentals of the marketplace and what people actually need for you. And then yeah. that's a deep, like a depersonalized restatement of what they're saying, even if they are making it personal. Yeah. And maybe that's a way to deescalate difficult situations, reflecting yeah. it back, like you said, taking the personalization out. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like maybe we need to look for somebody who's an expert at that and then book them for a discussion. So if anybody in the audience knows somebody who is really, really good at that kind of reflection and depersonalization, I'm not sure exactly what role that would be. It doesn't need to be a technical role. It could be just part of a, you know, just a personal interaction coaching or something like it's that. It's got to be somebody in procurement. I mean, that is the first thing that came <laughs> to my, my mind. I was thinking about Crucial Conversations. There's yeah. that book that we have to read as we kind of come up, you know, some, somewhere in that. There's, there's got to be some kind of training somewhere. But back to the episode, I, I think that there's a really interesting take on feature requests. I think it's kind of a, a variation on the theme that you're pointing out about not reacting emotionally and taking tough feedback. Sometimes people in a product management role have a strategic view of feature requests, what the market needs, what market research they are aware of that is at odds with a single person's view of the tactical requirements that they have right in front of them. So that's what leads to perceptions of, you know, misprioritization, people thinking that the entire world is using the product exactly the way that they're using it, when that might not be the case. So true. It's hard to take that when you're on the other side of like, this isn't what I need. Well, I'm trying right. to accommodate what thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions even. I can't possibly make every single person happy or achieve every single functionality they want or everything will be so-so instead of as much as possible being very good. Yeah. And I think that there's a very difficult conversation, maybe another one of those crucial conversations that has to be had there or is maybe avoided, right? The idea that Yes, I understand what it is that you're asking for, but you're in the vast, vast minority when it comes to people who are prioritizing that. I had to have a conversation like that. I had a customer who was asking for something and they said, you know, hey, we're in the like multiple hundreds of thousands of users, you know, in our universe. And I talked to somebody in DevRel and the DevRel person said, well, we're focusing on people with a million active users a month. And it was just a, a scale issue that I just didn't know that that was the market. You know, the overall market was if they scaled below a million active monthly users, then they'd be overwhelmed with requests. Wow. You know, for, for long-term engagements and to have to go back to somebody and say, Hey, this is the scale that they're looking for. It doesn't mean that you're not important. It just means that they had to draw a line somewhere and that's where they drew the line. Yeah. It's a great point. I want to add in a different thought here, if that's all right. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was interesting the way David 
gained some of the expertise he was lacking after becoming a product manager through conferences, reading books, reading blogs, sometimes user groups, but he mentioned that those were not as helpful as the others. But those are some of the common patterns that our other guests have used as resources for them to supplement the knowledge they can gain from the people they work with or maybe people in their professional network. Yeah, a really good call out, kind of that finding extended resources to learn your role or the subject and domain that you're trying to gain expertise in. Really good point. You know, just really quickly before we wrap up here, I found that David's kind of mode of job progression and career progression was an outlier. It was fascinating to hear him talk about how he focused on that process of, I don't know, I don't know what to call it other than like strategic job, strategic job function, that thing that you talked about earlier, which is making the product better and making, mm -hmm. you know, the users, making sure that the users had a better experience of the product. That was what his focus was on not increasing areas of responsibility or increasing or progressing that specific career, you know, his career and what his next specific step was going to be. That's such an interesting outlier. Maybe it has to do with the fact that he was in some startups, you know, a little bit earlier on where everybody's being asked to do multiple job functions and your opportunity to get exposed to a bunch of different things, including management, the ability to move up and move down is is maybe just a little bit better. Like there's there's more of that in a smaller company that's in startup growth phase. I don't know. Does that make sense to you? It does. Because you can put on a hat almost like it's a part-time job instead of a full-time job to get your, get your feet wet and really see if you like it yeah. and want to do that long term whereas maybe in a larger company they're going to have a dedicated resource for that and you have to decide if you want to slide over in that direction or not even if you try it on you're trying it on as a full-time job mm -hmm. and maybe they're holding a slot open for you to go back to your actual full-time job or maybe not so it's just a little bit more traumatic anything else before we kind of get out of here no, sir. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at Nerd Journey. And you can tell that David Babbitt had us pondering. Yes. By the length of time that we've gone on uh, discussing it. But with that in mind, farewell listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, at V Journeyman. For Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore signing off. Adios.